and welcome to Trees of Crowd. This episode comes from Nibley in Gloucestershire. I'm currently seeking shelter inside the Tyndall Monument. I tried to record this up on top, but there's... Well, you might be able to hear the gale force winds, and I can't open my eyes because of the sleet and the rain. Uh, we were hoping to record some of today's podcast outside, talking to Mark Frith about his, his mission to draw every single ancient oak and ancient ash in the country but we might be doing that from the safety of his, his art studio. Anyway, here we are in Tyndall's Monument. William Tyndall, who famously translated, I think, just the New Testament, I think, into English, and was burnt at the stake for his efforts. But the Victorians built this wonderful tower to him so that silly Englishmen can walk up it at 9 o'clock in the morning and get blown off the top. Anyway, thank you for listening. This is Trees of Crowd. Uh, Mark Frith coming up. In the depth of the forest and all the the pride of the greenwood there O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare She clung like a bride to his sturdy side And her shining leaves so green Made him blithe and gay through the live-long day In the midst of a winter scene Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From the botanist or weaver, infused by wildflower or beaver, I'm here to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, we're down in Gloucestershire to talk to artist and documentary filmmaker Mark Frith. He's worked for nearly 30 years making documentaries, winning a BAFTA in the process for his work on The Lie of the Land yet he is perhaps currently best known for his four-year project drawing the ancient oak trees of Great Britain. Mark, hello, and welcome to Trees of Crowd. Hello, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely, our pleasure. Thanks for having us in your home here. Yeah, on rather lashingly rainy day. It's horrible. Um, I was up the um, Tyndall Monument this morning trying to get a view of your oak tree in your garden and almost got blown off the top. Yes, uh, well, the Tyndale Monument was one of the features of the landscape here I grew up in this house and uh, climbing the Tyndale Monument climbing the, 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 the ancient oak the sit nearby were all part of the same childhood uh, sort of, uh, landscape running away from adults and do you think there's a uniform sort of requirement for every child that grows up in this area to have been forced up the monument forced up the tree not forced up we were up the monument at any opportunity we would carry things up drop them out just it was part of a in those days it wasn't um you know tourism i'm talking 55 years ago tourism was not nearly as uh, ubiquitous as it is now in in the uk and the monument was virtually abandoned and was filled from bottom to top with jackdaws nests peregrine falcons all sorts of things and no human beings and, and so it was Part of our childhood kingdom. Well, I see now they've they've actually had to shut off one of the footpaths up to it because it's too often used. That's right, yeah, which is great. I mean, people get Go out there. and and, and it's lit up places. now as well. Since the it millennium. is, yes. We arrived yeah. last night, stayed in the pub down at the bottom of the hill. Yeah, and you drive into the car park, and the first thing you see on top of the hill That's is this, right, this yes. luminous beacon, yes. almost on fire, like poor Tyndale himself. Yes. Well, you you know, the, this landscape has changed considerably in the 60 years I've known it. Uh, and, and one of the, the big changes is the number of people who, uh, when I was a boy growing up, very few people had cars. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to travel anywhere in, in the rural world, you got on a bus. 
uh, certainly for the villagers. Now it's a, it's, a, it's a commuter village. It's also a tourist destination, which it never was. So the, the, the countryside around here when I was a child, it was a really a much wilder place. The style of farming, they were small dairy farms. When were I was your a, family a farming family? No, they weren't. But uh, when we were surrounded by dairy farms, the landscape that we look out on from the house is the Barclay Vale, and we looked out in those days onto six little family farms, perhaps 100 acres, 120 acres. Now I look out onto two farms, one of which is still dairy and the other of which is large arable. We're sort of touching on your documentary, your BAFTA award-winning documentary, I believe, um, which we might as well talk about now. I will come back to your childhood a bit later. But your well, yeah, so that was working with Molly Deneen, who I was at the National Film School with, and um, Molly... Uh, is actually a city person. She's born and brought up in Birmingham, lives in London. But she was exercised about the way the urban-rural divide in this country was panning out, particularly around fox hunting. Of course. And um, we worked together over a number of years, buzzing about all over the place, looking really into... um, There's a dichotomy in the way the urban population in particular thinks about the rural landscape and the, the wildlife that inhabit it in a very different way than they would think about the, the, the farm work that goes on. So they think of, of they anthropomorphise the wild animals, the mm-hmm. badger, the fox, and etc., without giving a thought for the reality of the farmers, reality of the, farms and the dairy farmers who, yeah. Did and you find that even though you were coming from a more rural background and she was coming from the urban, that you came together in your viewpoint or did you inform each other in terms of your perspectives? I think we had a pretty uh, similar idea about the idea that the urban majority of this country told the rural population how to behave without really understanding what the life was that they lived. But they've all read some Thomas Hardy, so why why shouldn't they know? (laughs) Exactly. Um, uh, but, but, you know, back to this landscape and the, and the way the landscape uh, has changed. When we were children, uh, my, my bringing up here was semi-feral. My mother was a single mother with five sons living in oh, this wow. house. And we ran wild <laughs> in a landscape which, as I say, they were these small family farms. They were very backward is the wrong word, but they were, they were very old-fashioned. The first... Uh, my first memories of farming were with a farmer who still worked with horses. He, it was an unbroken tradition on this particular farm, mm-hmm. and seeing these men with leather gaiters working these big old cart horses, mm-hmm. I thought that's how the world was. The, well, I mean, the world still is, and if you go to those parts of the world, I, I filmed in Eastern Europe quite a lot, and you'd be driving through the Romanian countryside, and you'd, you'd see oxen still pulling plows. Yes, And absolutely. I'm talking two years ago, I was watching this, um, and we forget that agrarian industry the technology behind it has shifted in some countries but not in others but also the the scale in which it grows has a destructive force upon farming in a many, many ways even if you can afford a combine you then need enough land to make that financially viable to have said combine certainly the, the yes the industrialization of agriculture over the last well i suppose it really goes back 150 years but in the last post second world war the landscape that i know has been hugely changed Back in the 1970s, the late 60s, the landscape of the Barclay Vale was small fields with thick hedgerows, all filled with elm trees from one end to the other. And this was before Dutch elm. Many of these fields would would perhaps be three or four acres. 
at the most. They would have a dew pond in the corner and the cattle would go to drink there. Once Dutch elm hit, that changed the landscape. But alongside that, the grants that were offered to grub up hedgerows and create larger fields had an enormous impact on this landscape. Mm-hmm. And it ripped open what was really, as, a, as I say, quite, a, quite a, a, a wild secret landscape into these much larger fields where the fields now are 20 or 30 acres and they're ploughed and, and used for harvesting. I think what's interesting is we're probably on, the, on another turning point. I think if, if and when we leave the EU and farming regulations become decentralised, we could see the, the countryside of England change again how that change manifests itself is yet to be seen because, well, Brexit is yet to be seen. There is potential for change. I would wonder, though, whether the, you know, the farming families that I can remember as, as, as a child, they had far fewer material possessions and objectives than they, than they have now. You know, um, people growing up today expect... Uh, rightly so, to have many uh, have a great deal more disposable income. Uh, they have aspirations to own many, many things that these the old Gloucestershire farmers I remember as a boy didn't. It simply wasn't on their horizon. So, so that brings me to your childhood. What, can you remember what it was those first magical natural moments of your childhood? You mentioned the tree. Like, what, what specifically? What kind of shadow did that cast across you? Uh, as I said, we lived a semi-feral boyhood my brothers and I running around inventing our own games and I was unwittingly as a child open to the mystery if you like uh, of there's a sort of mystical element uh, of my childhood which I wasn't consciously aware of at the time but I look back and I can see uh, you know uh, that it, it laid a very deep foundation that has stayed with me as through throughout my adult years, and which has um, really been a reservoir of, of um, a spiritual resource. We should and probably it, mention at this point that this tree that we're referring to is an ancient oak tree. It's about yes, so uh, the, the tree that started the series of drawings that I've gone on at queue at the moment is a couple of fields away from this house. It's around 800 years, 1,000 years old. Nobody would be quite sure. And it was absolutely one of the great characters of our childhood. We would spend hours both inside and outside, up and down this tree. It was, uh, you know, it absolutely filled the childhood imagination. I think one thing that I found fascinating looking at, at the exhibition at, at Kew and, and growing up with trees myself is is the heritage and the storytelling aspect of these these natural wonders they they have seen so much they've experienced so much and we sort of come through as a as a brief participant of their existence yes the time scale of the tree is curious that you know uh, we uh, we we are fleeting passing incidents in their history we of course um as as human beings we 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 say these trees have seen this that and the other to what extent they they have witnessed, I don't know, but they have certainly been there, uh, and uh, we imagine what they might have seen in inverted commas. And uh, this local tree was, so, so say, witness to the last private battle in Britain, the Battle of Nibley Green, which was fought between two local landlords. The Barclay family had a um, a female line which wasn't allowed to inherit. God forbid, females. Uh, yes, exactly, kind of God power. forbid. And that line became the Lyle line. 
the son of that daughter of Barclay, Lord Lyle, challenged the nephew who had inherited and they fought a battle down here, a pitched battle. Which, he which was stage killed. is this? This is... this is the late 13th century. Okay. And how many people do we think? Uh, two or three hundred on each side. They were <laughs> I mean, thugs. They were a bunch of thugs, basically. Uh, get off my land. Yeah, get off my land. You <laughs> mustn't, I, I, you know, I tell my children, never forget that the, when the Normans came here, they were, they were like the Hell's Angels. Uh-huh. They were just a bunch of warriors. They were not nice people, I guess, I suspect. They went around killing each other. <laughs> well, you could do something without iPads. What else are you going to do? Yeah, absolutely. You entertain yourself. <laughs> so do we um, think the, the nibbly oak is the last surviving of a forest? Or do we think... It is potentially, yes. It's on the edge of a wood called Micklewood, which might well have linked up with another wood nearby called Kingswood that stretched from here to Bristol. Uh, it was almost certainly one of the hunting domains of mm-hmm. the... Early Norman. Aristocracy, yeah, the Norman aristocracy. And it's probably a boundary oak because it sits on the edge of what was the old village green, Nibley Green, and would have been used in the days before anybody could write. You would say, you well, you go that. up to meet you by that big oak there. There's, uh, a, there's one called the Vicar's Oak, which doesn't exist anymore, but mentioned in so many different documents of time, which is up near where I live in Crystal Palace. Yes. They've just made a little monument to sort of say this is near the site of the famous Vicar's Oak, and and they've hanged people off it, and they've there's yes, been a meeting point. Lovers that, have absolutely. Well, a number of the oaks childhood. that I drew had similar histories. So there's an oak in Dorset um, called Wyndham's Oak. That's which, the Mottisfont one. No, it's no. not. It's uh, near the village of Sultan. I think it's Sultan Oak. Uh, but it was a hanging tree. So uh, it's close to the manor and the church. And hanging Judge Jeffreys, who went round after the peasants' revolt. Is it the peasants' royal? I'm not sure on my history there. They lynched the, his victims on the tree, and it still stands to this day. Uh, so that brings us very neatly on to your, your series of, of, of 20 oak trees. I guess my first question is, well, to describe what they're... The, these are huge pencil drawings of, of trees, greatly detailed, without foliage, showing the structure of these... the above-ground structure of these trees. Yes. And... I think we can understand why you were so influenced by them growing up with the oak tree, but how yeah, does so a keen interest turn into what is starting to be a life's work? Well, the whole project started... I, I lived in London for many years, and I came back home to this house in 2004, and I became very excited again by the landscape. It, 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 you know, I found it very moving. It always had done, but to be re... Um, reacquainted with it in a very intimate way and I started just to draw and paint a little bit as I used to as a boy and um, you're not professionally trained as a as an artist you went to art school I, I did go to Bristol. art school I studied sculpture but it was but more at a time when it was conceptual so my sure. work was as a, as a, as a conceptual artist uh, I mean, there is an element of the conceptual about it. it's it's fine art but it's it's abstracted. You've I think. I think broadly foliage. speaking, as a project, there is a, there is a concept behind the project of drawing twenty of Britain's oak trees, which comes from um, two areas. One, as a filmmaker, I tend to think in um, projects. So I, I, I think quite large. Mm-hmm. I think I, when I just drew the first tree, it was simply because it was there, and I drew it. But I very rapidly began to think, oh, there are other trees like this. There's a project here, mm-hmm. uh, and that's how it evolved into a project. But that's a spark. How do you, how do you finance <laughs> yes, a spark? So, um, well, 
initially I did the did this one. First of all, I drew it on quite a small scale, about A3. But then looking at this drawing, I, I felt that the tree itself, requ- it, it deserved and required something much larger. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was, you know, the tree is huge. And so I got to what to me seemed an enormous piece of paper and I <laughs> drew this first tree and um, was quite pleased with the result. And that was your tree. That was the. That first was the one. tree here, the the old, uh, um, the great oak at Nibley Green. If the weather's kind enough, we'll go out and have a yes. look at it in a bit. And uh, so I drew that and researched a little bit about ancient oaks. Came up with the idea of a project. Was fortunate enough to be able to show this particular drawing to Prince Charles, uh, who was very enthusiastic about it, uh, and that sort of inspired me to go on and 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 look for serious money because I realised. To do a project like this, it would take four years, uh, perhaps three or four years. I would need serious finance. Your, this original project, I think it was just ten drawings you were originally planning at that stage. That's right. Well, or I, it was I open-ended. wasn't quite it was, sure. But, depending um, on who you found to finance it, yes. it would either be ten, twenty, a hundred. At the time, we were filming The Lie of the Land, and Molly Deneen's husband, uh, William Seacard, uh, is the guy who set up National Poetry Day Oh, wow. And he saw this drawing and he said, you know what, you should go and show this guy, Felix Dennis. He's mad keen on trees. He's a great patron of the arts. Why don't you go and show him? He gave me some money for National Poetry Day. I think he might be in with luck. So I looked on the internet and Felix was giving a poetry reading in Stratford-on-Avon. And two weeks later, it was a November night. And so I just doorstepped him. I drove up to Stratford with this enormous drawing blagged my way into the town hall, persuaded his PAs, he had several people buzzing around, Mm -hmm. that I should take it in and show him in the dressing room, staggered him with this enormous (laughs) drawing, said, Mr. Dennis, I've done this drawing. I've got this idea. (laughs) It reminds me of being a child going up to my mum and going, Mum, look what I've done. Yes. Uh, So, thank God. I knew the drawing would speak for itself. And I, I, you're completely right to believe that, having yeah. seen seen them in the in the flesh yeah. now. They really do. They're quite something special. So, yeah, so I knew it would speak for himself. And unfortunately, Felix absolutely got it. The upshot was an invitation to lunch. And during that time, actually, that was funny in itself. So Felix sat me down to lunch and we sat down at one o'clock. And by four o'clock, we had drunk some incredible wines. We <laughs> talked about an awful lot of things. He hadn't once mentioned drawing trees. <laughs> and suddenly, uh, you know, we'd just finished a bottle of Chateau Ikem, which was well worth drinking. And he suddenly banged the table. He said, right, tell me about the trees. <laughs> <laughs> and within 20 minutes, he grabbed a scrap of paper, written this contract. He scrolled it up, shoved it in the bottom at the top of this empty bottle of Ikem, slid it across the table. He's like, show that to your wife. That'll cheer her up. <laughs> and it was a contract to, uh, it was initially to do 12 trees. 12. Uh, and, and this was about 10 years ago, 12 years ago? Uh, it was 2011, I think. Okie dokie. Yeah. How old was he at that point? Felix was he's no longer then with been us, in early 60s. Yeah, no, sadly, he died age 67. 66, 67. And how did he set up his charity at that point, the Heart of the Forest? He had got it going. He hadn't actually formalised it as a charity. He was planting trees. He had this ambition to create a a new native British forest that would be entirely public access in Warwickshire, near his home. And he started buying land and planting trees. Mm -hmm. And he he had started the project by then. And so trees was absolutely his thing. Um, he was a marvellous patron of the arts, 
I would take him a drawing. He, you know, he absolutely he was never prescriptive as a patron. He was always enthusiastic, and and when I suggested that you know I would take him up some drawings, uh, and and he'd get all his stuff. I said, "Look at this! Look at this! Isn't this great?" <laughs> he had this really rough Cockney accent, which he, um, uh, and then I would say, "You know, Felix, I think we need to do a couple more." He'd just roar with laughter. He'd say, "Get my checkbook! I know what these <laughs> artists are like." Uh, so he was he was marvelous about that, and um, sadly he fell ill towards the end of this project. And How many did he see completed in the end? Uh, we got to 20. Uh-huh. We, he saw the last of them that we drew. And I, by then, knew that this project needed something. It needed a home. And so I suggested to him that we should take it to Kew. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, I'd done a commission for um, one of the Rothschilds, who was friends of Kew. And with Lionel Rothschild's help, I approached the head of library and arts at Kew and persuaded him that they would well it didn't take much persuading we showed him the drawing and said yeah, look there are 19 more where this came from so Kew, Kew now own 10 of them that's and right half so um, the other 10. yeah uh, Felix decided he would donate 10 directly to Kew and hang on to 10 but give, put them on temporary loan to Kew sure. uh, which we did so the exhibition Runs to the end of March. Yes, seventeenth of March. We might, this podcast might actually you go might out. Just miss it. Uh, but it's then it. going on. Ten of the drawings are going on to the National Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire. Oh, lovely! Um, and we'll be there, I think, for a couple of months, from around about the middle of April to the middle of June. Great. Go to Staffordshire then. I think yes. That's the message we're telling. Yeah, ten of the the ten drawings that that belong to Q are going up there. Um, the other ten drawings will go back to the heart of England Forest. They are going to set up a visitor centre in Warwickshire, and they will go on display there. There's something lovely about them sort of going off back to be as disparate from each other as they once were, even though they're all wonderfully Scattered collected. to the four winds. Yeah. Yes. I mean, which brings us, I guess, onto the, my big question is, how do you go about selecting the 20 appropriate ancient oaks? Yeah, so once I'd got Felix on board, I went first of all to a photographer called Archie Miles, who's a tree photographer, and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of, of interesting trees in Britain. He really does. He's amazing. And uh, with his help, we then went. I went to various of the you know the um, tree bodies. There's the Ancient Tree Forum. There's the Woodland um, Trust, obviously. Woodland Trust, yes. So I went around and we drew up a short list of. Is he local to here? Is he? He's not far away. Yeah, he's up in. Um, just across the river in Herefordshire. Lovely. Yeah. And, uh, and did he accompany you on these? No, the but, but he was great. You know, Neither he told me, yeah, he had lists of landowners and contacts because he'd photographed many of these trees. So he was a, he was a real help. And um, uh, he himself has done books on, on oak trees. Perhaps you might visit him in, in, in time. He's we were always up yeah, for accepting more yeah. recommendations of people well, to talk to. Do go and knock on Archie Miles' door. Um, I asked you when we spoke on the phone a few a few days ago whether or not you knew the work of Tassa Dean who had photographed a few of the oak trees. Yes, I saw Tassa Dean's work. She actually had done one of the trees that I did, um, a tree called Majesty down in Kent. Uh, and I was really taken with, with her work. 
because I think it was um, 2006 off the top of my head that she... It was around about this time that I got going, or perhaps a little bit ahead, actually. Everyone has great ideas yes. at the same time. It's so infuriating, yes. isn't it? There is this synchronicity, isn't yeah. there, always with projects. I suddenly discover that everybody's interested in trees. I heard John Humphreys is retiring from the Today programme. Mm-hmm. And guess what? He's going to go and look at trees. Do he's trees. Going to do, he wants to do something with trees. Um, I think perhaps it it fits in with a number of things. Global warming, everybody suddenly is aware that trees are... The best technology we have. Yes, exactly, a solution to global warming. Back to Tacita, very, very briefly. I think, personally, what I got from her work was something that was quite cold and foreboding, whereas she showed the skeleton of a a, a wintry tree to sort of highlight sort of... a a sort of darkness, almost a witchcrafty kind of feel. Your work, through its... preciseness and refinement shows something a lot more positive you can see the tree sort of stretching out trying to uh, accomplish something it feels like to me yes the first drawing i did i had no idea what i was doing but what emerged was these aren't botanical drawings these are portraits Mm -hmm. i'm a romantic you know from my childhood to this day i i certainly have spiritual empathy with the with the natural world and what emerged in this tree was somehow an expression of that it is very definitely not botanical drawing. Mm-hmm. And Which is ironic, where the exhibition is at the moment uh, in Kew. Yes, although Kew... There's an extension Kew, of botanical drawings all around it. Indeed, it in yes. I, I've done a number of talks at Kew, and the first thing I, m- I make very clear is that I am not, not a botanical, botanical. artist, uh, and I make no apology for that. I simply came to these trees as enormous characters and attempted to bring some of that character mm-hmm. uh, into the drawing... The reason to choose the winter tree, like Tastadine, is one needs to see the structure. Mm-hmm. In the summer, the trees are magnificent, but they are an amorphous blob. Mm-hmm. Um, the surface area of trees, yeah. I mean, I could bring out some t- statistics now if we pressed pause and I went on my iPhone. Yes. <laughs> Which is probably anti, anti this kind of podcast. But, there, yeah, there but is. It, the reality of what trees... Yeah. There, there was an amazing documentary about the oak tree by George somebody. I'll look that up and mm. put it in the blog alongside this which looked at the life of an oak tree over the course of a year, looking at how the, 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 the chlorophyll, yes. the energy in the chlorophyll yeah. is taken out That's over right. autumn and put back down into yeah. the roots to be then brought back out again the following spring. Yes. And it was amazing to watch this time-lapse footage over the course of a year of this yes. wonderful ancient oak, oak, oak tree growing. I mean, what, going back to Tessa Dean, mm-hmm. one other thing is in an age when the camera is ubiquitous, um, I think her work is great, but it, it, was, a, it was a work from a photograph. I think and the one thing that struck me from seeing your exhibition, the wonderful thing, in the middle there's a little cabinet full of your pencil stubs that are left over from the work you've right. done. Yes. And one thing I remember from my art A-level was my teachers, Mr and Mrs Davies, a married couple who fought across one door divide, one of them screaming that the pre-Raphaelites were worth and the other one saying <laughs> that we should get on with the future and embrace Rothko. Yes. Um, but... Um, they always had these tiny little pencils. No pencil was ever wasted. And there was something so wonderfully homely about seeing that pile of pencil stubs there alongside the oak trees. Yes. Well, one of the uh, pleasures of, of the work that I've done is it is incredibly simple. It's a piece of paper and a pencil. And I do get through a number of pencils and one becomes fond of them in, mm-hmm. in a curious way. And so... I don't throw them away. They are all sitting in piles here and there. Do you use the same strength pencil? Or do you try on, I, well, I work on two different materials. When I'm working on paper, all the work at Kew is on a pre-stretched watercolour paper, Fabriano. And my frame makers treat it like a watercolour paper. They, they wet it, 
put it onto a, a wooden subframe and then tape it with waterproof tape. The paper then dries and shrinks and it becomes a very, very smooth, flat surface to draw on. When I'm working on that, it's got a particular tooth and I work with pretty well always a 3B. Okay. You can go from very light to very dark with 3B. But I also work on gesso panels, and I've done a number of trees on gesso panels. We're looking at one of them right now, aren't we? No, this is actually paper. This is But that's how flat and smooth yeah. the paper can be made by treating it as a watercolour paper. The one thing that you've got um, uh, tracing paper over where your hand is resting, obviously. Your that's right. right yeah, I work from left to right. Does that infuriate? Because when, when I draw... I always choose the most interesting bit to start with because I, I and then the the, the art, artwork gets worse from there as yeah. I do the. You you have to start on the outskirts, so it's it's yes. like a marathon. You start you warm That's up, right. then you get to the meat of the trunk when you get yes. halfway through, but then you've still got another half of a marathon to keep yeah, drawing. That is right. So um, I work from I square up small sketches onto the um, big paper, so I know exactly where the tree is going to be. It's very very lightly marked in, but then because I work almost in finished detail from, from the very first pencil mark, proper pencil mark. I have to work from left to right. I'm right-handed. Mm-hmm. And I keep a, a sheet of trace across the rest of the papers to stop the oil from my hand soaking into the paper. Mm-hmm. It's and beautiful. It's absolutely The stunning. drawing has the sort of peculiar ability to emerge finished uh, as, it, as it, it reveals itself. I, I, this, is, this is such a reductive thing to say, and I'm really sorry for saying it in advance. But it, it reminds me of those old dot matrix printers, which we yes, used to have at school. Yes, that's right. There up. is an element of that. As, as you I sort do, of work your yeah. way down in, in lines vertically as it comes, and slowly yes. it comes out, like, yeah. a, like a fax machine. or a yeah. when, when the drawing is going really well, I think I say this in, in, in the book that I did with Q, that the first drawing I did, as the drawing emerged, something curious, this curious sensation started to happen which where where my hand seemed to be moving across the paper at a remove from my conscious brain there was a sort of subconscious uh it was as though the drawing was drawing itself Mm -hmm. and this happens on it's happened on all the drawings i've done and i think that has to do with my childhood goes right back to my childhood the intimacy that i had with these ancient this ancient oak tree as a child I have this sensation when I'm drawing, I can feel the weight of the branch, I can feel the texture of the bark, even the twigs, even the smell of the, 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 the decaying wood, because all of these trees are hollow inside, and we spent hours inside these hollow trees. As I'm drawing, I get the sensations um, of, of these other senses, and it's, uh, it's a wonderful feeling, and it, it, it is... To some extent, it's where the drawings come from. These portraits, they it's are an intoxication. not. It's they, yeah, internal. they're not consciously. I, uh, I d- didn't ever set out consciously to create a particular look. Mm-hmm. The look emerged, and it emerges somewhere. Part, some part of it is from inside me. Mm. I, I guess this is a, a bad question, but did you take souvenirs from the trees? Did you find an? I asked, leaf and or? yes, curiously, there's a piece of wood over behind us, which is uh-huh. from the Pontifadic oak. Which um, so whenever it's about a meter long, I guess is that a branch? It is. That's yes, it's, it's it was a piece of decaying wood lying beside the tree, and I asked the owners, could I take it? Um, it's partly important. I had pieces of bark in the studio when I'm drawing, so I can have reference, mm-hmm. uh, and I quite often run my hands over them, feel them, because as you're drawing, 
as I say, you, you get this sort of feeling of the bark emerging with the pencil strokes. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of vocabulary of pencil marks which has emerged too over the years that I've been drawing them. The, the end, the, especially the ends of the thinner branches, there's definitely yes. a stylistic... Yes, uh, absolutely. I would make no bones about that. These are not photorealist drawings. They, they are stylized portraits. Mm-hmm. And part of the pleasure for me was evolving this style and seeing this style emerge. There's a deliberate flattening of the trees, mm-hmm. choosing the winter tree, pushing it into a sort of two-dimensionality. I suppose I was looking for an icon, um, uh-huh. something uh, that, that, that really reached towards the character of the tree. No, they're fantastic. As I say in the book, um, you know, it, it occurred to me that if these trees did have souls, I suppose I was reaching out towards the soul of the tree. <laughs> Although I'm aware in saying that, that, of course, that is an anthropomorphic... Uh, it, well, going back to what we said earlier, it's almost impossible not to anthropomorphize elements of the natural world. Yes. Um, fighting against it only seems to make that draw more potent. Absolutely. You can only hope that they anthropomorphize us in return and think that we're perhaps valid and feel do. as strongly as perhaps they do. I mean, we have evolved as a, as a, as a species. We've evolved over many hundred thousand years living in the natural world, and we've undergone a traumatic wrenching away from that natural world in the very, very recent past. And that traumatic wrenching away must have potential traumatic effects on us. Well, I, I, I think it very much is, in, in some in spiritual terms, but some in very natural biological terms. We were talking last night um, about antibiotics and how the rapidity with which, with which we have used them has having a very real effect upon humankind at the moment. Yes. Um, and subsequently, the rest of the world, I mean, the natural world. Mm. Um, yeah, we, well, we, if we don't want it, we can go into a very dark place, which is, as a species, Homo sapien, what it's done to the planet that it's, it, it is its home planet is utterly shocking mm. and appalling. You know, I've got a drawing in the hall about, um, which I showed you earlier, it's got a number of species uh, of birds that we have made extinct in the last two, 200 years. I'll be asking you a question at the end of this podcast, which will probably draw us back to that quite neatly, to both, actually two of the questions I'll ask you at the mm. end. Before we get on to that, what's next? I've got a number of nascent projects. One of them that I've, I've just started on is um, drawing a similar series of uh, portraits of the most notable ash trees in this country. You will be aware of ash Ash dieback, which is potentially going to have a catastrophic effect on Britain's native ash trees. Incidentally, ash dieback is is, um, caused by human activity in that it's caused by importing trees from other continents with, which come with diseases. That well, we mentioned Dutch elm earlier, which is yes, similar. The, Sa- the same story. The yeah. blight of the maple yeah. trees in America yeah. too. Yes. Um, there are so many stories of human interruption actually affecting the tree populations around the world. I, I guess from, from your oak trees leading into focusing on ash trees, your personal interests in, uh, in how you believe that the humankind is negatively affecting the world and your artistic aspirations are colliding in something quite they are powerful. yes and i find that you know there's a real paradox in my relationship with the natural world um as a as a parent bringing up children in what is 
apparently a rural idyll here, really. We live in a beautiful part of the countryside. Uh, and yet, at the same time, we are aware and we discuss all the time the damage that has been done to the natural world, the whole business of global warming, mm -hmm. the Anthropocene extinction uh, event which we are causing. So that uh, there's, we, we um, you know, I have a personally very paradoxical relationship with the natural world. Which brings us very neatly onto my final three questions. Firstly, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would you go? Right now, I would go uh, into... Probably not raining quite um, so much. I would go into the tropical uh, rainforests of central South America. It's some, I've been in tropical rainforests, but not in South America, not in central South America, and it's the next place on my wish list. Uh, you know, the, it's an incredible richness and diversity of the natural world to be found in the tropical rainforest. That is without a doubt. If you could whisk me off magically, <laughs> that's where we would go. Uh, secondly, should we colonise the moon? <laughs> well, um, the practicalities of it, I think, might prove rather difficult. But uh, I'm certainly up for the idea, you know, the, of finding other worlds that we could, uh, for want of a better word, f*** <laughs> up. <laughs> Uh, I hope we wouldn't, but we we might well do. Yes. The, no, the idea of other planets with other natural worlds on is thrilling. It's it's beyond thrilling if we could possibly get there. I um I don't know if you've seen I've definitely seen the film Avatar, the James Cameron movie. Yes. This yeah. I mean it's it's not my favourite film, but the, the creature creation, the world creation, the hypothesis of another yes. livable world to an yeah. extent, and the biology and the environment that comes yes. with it is, it's, it's an awe-inspiring vision. Absolutely. I mean, more to the point, I would um, hope and pray that future generations will somehow make up for the damage that we have done. My generation, I make no bones about it. You know, I've driven a car all my life. I've lived in a house with electricity, mea culpa. Although in this house we've tried, we're, we've got um, ground source heat pump, we've got photovoltaic, we've tried to bring in all, everything. We don't have any um, uh, fossil fuels mm -hmm. in, in the house if we can help it. Um, and I'm, my next purchase, as with many people, is about to be an electric car. Wonderful. Um, but that doesn't take away the guilt that my generation and the three or four generations before me uh, and the probably a couple of generations following have caused to this natural world. But I do hope passionately that people will somehow get, be able to make amends to some small extent. I truly hope so. I hope you're right there, but you only have to look at how many iPhones and iPads that uh, people of my generation and younger are clutching on a... Yeah. An hour to hour, minute to minute basis to realize that the amount of power that we are using up and therefore yeah. the amount of the natural world that we are destroying is not necessarily improving. And part of the motivation behind doing the oak trees and, and moving on to the ash trees was sadly to leave uh, a memento mori of these wonderful uh, uh, ancient plants that may well not survive many years beyond me well one of the oaks that you documented one of the 20 has already died since you drew it I that's believe. right yes and there is oak tip dieback present in the uk the forestry commission research estimates that with global warming most of the trees that i have drawn will be dead within the next century because they will suffer 
traumatic heat events during mm. summer summer warming. Mm, it's very sad. I hope your your work proves a suitable epitaph. Yes, and alas. So one final question to end on, uh, which we ask everybody, is if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? Any species? Well, that takes us back to the dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> well, does it, though? You're painting out in the corridor of, 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 of birds yes. and fowl that we have. Well, it would be marvellous uh, or uh, extraordinary if uh, genetic engineering allows us to bring back to life some of the species that we still have uh, organic matter uh, available to work for scientists to work from. As with the mammoth, the woolly mammoth, you know, th- there is potential. All of that would be thrilling, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely, you know, to see the passenger pigeon again, which was actually in itself not a remarkable bird, no. but in its... The manner in, in which we yeah, destroyed it. The is. numbers which we destroyed, yes, absolutely. Some of the, the, the small tropical birds that we've killed. That would all be marvellous. I was reading an article the other day, I think it was in The Guardian, about uh, human impact uh, on mega fauna, flora and bird life and how we've destroyed uh, every single kind of mega bird and every single kind of mega lizard and now we're working our way through the... Absolutely, the the elephant. The elephants, uh, the rhinos. All of that, it's shocking and, and, and dreadful. I would never... Um, those shirk my own part in it you, you know i've flown on jets i've uh i've got tropical hardwoods in this house we are all guilty mm-hmm. uh, and we all need to look to ourselves as well as uh, to everyone who has their imac plugged in to download this podcast is yes, a culprit alas. to the destruction of the yeah. planet i hope stop not, listening now yeah i hope stop it's not it. too late <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. that's fantastic if people want to know more as we said um uh, ten of the oak trees will be on display in Staffordshire later on in the year. And you have a website. It's markfrithartworks.co.uk. So we're, we're outside, we're a little bit wet, and we're sheltering from the, from the elements, but we're standing in front of, of the great oak. So the, this tree, uh, you, you measure ancient oaks, nearly all the ancient oaks that I have drawn, all of them in fact are hollow inside, uh, so you can't tell the age by um, drilling in and counting the rings and so there is a very rough estimate by measuring the dimensions of the trunk at, at about chest height this one is 46 feet round and you can then say guessing at the number of annual growth rings that would have been required, you can give it a rough age Somewhere between 800 and 1,000 years old, the tree we're standing under. It's, it's absolutely breathtaking. Every single angle is unique in its complexity. You can't quite work out which branches have been here for, for 10 years, 50 years, 500 years. And I've been looking at the drawing that you've done for the last few months, and I wasn't really prepared at all. Yes. Uh, you know, the drawings are only just that. They are just drawings. When you stand in front of one of these trees... They are overwhelming in their scale and the beauty of them. Just there's something about the scale which tells you about the age, which is awe-inspiring. Yeah, and I mean that we've got badger set holes underneath our feet. You said there was a barn owl that used to to nest I think up still there. Is. Yeah, there's still, still is. barn owls here. There are bats inside. Small children uh, might have got stuck indeed, in there. And then. yes, this this was my childhood stomping ground. We climbed it. We wriggled around inside it. We um, when we were children, not this tree, but another remarkable tree not far from here, the great 
Tortworth chestnut, which is oh, we were hearing about that last huge. night. It's enormous. Well, we we, we set fire to it when we were children. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, the great Fiore got into the local Points West television news. For well, kids will be kids. Yeah. Kids will be pyromaniacs. <laughs> We wanted to see how long we could stay inside the, the hollow with the smoke. With, with the smoke and yeah, exactly, the fire building yes. up around you. Well, I'm glad you failed miserably in your attempt to burn yeah, it down. Yeah, we did. We failed. Thank glad you've succeeded in, yeah. in, in drawing this and trying, trying to get some kind of retribution from arboreal yes. kind. Yes. Um, yeah. How often do you come down here? Do you, do you sort of pilgrimage on a daily basis? I or? see the tree every day when I walk my dogs. So uh, I walk the dogs up on the hill over there uh-huh. and I look down on the tree. And it is, it is absolutely... I am probably one of perhaps 15 or 20 generations who've had the privilege of seeing the tree at this sort of size uh, and uh, I often think that, that we were just talking earlier about how brief is, is our human passage compared to these yeah. trees. Well there's a massive branch that must have come off right up there Yes. that must have probably been not quite as large as the main trunk that's going up but that's a good I don't know, five metres in circumference of that one branch? Yes, it is. Uh, Maybe not perhaps, four, five? Yeah. Um, many of these trees were pollards. This one of actually course. is a maiden. But, oh, okay. but um, this is unusual. Most of the trees... Pollarding drew, being maintaining pollarding, them to... Uh, it's, it's not maintenance, but it's harvesting. So you, you take a tree when it gets 100 years old, you lop off all the top branches, and you use them for whatever, for firewood or for, for timber... Um, um, building fences, and you can do that every fifty to a hundred years uh, but this over one, the full however, life of the tree. This, this one's one a maiden. Yeah, this is a maiden. So it's you even can more see rare. the main trunk going up, uh, perhaps not very high, perhaps seventy-five feet to the t- to the top, a hundred feet maybe, the seventy-five, hundred feet. It's like at some point, uh, maybe five hundred years old, it's gone. You know, being fat's all right, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... I don't need to be tall anymore. Yeah. I'm going to sort of thicken out a bit. They say the life of the oak tree, 300 years growing, 300 years maturing, and 300 years dying. Oh. Well, long may of, she stand. Long may she stand. In terms of the height of this oak tree, it's interesting, if you look at the other oaks around, she's uh-huh. not much... She's about the same height as all of them. The rest of them look taller because they are not nearly as fat, uh-huh. and, uh, not nearly as wide. Well, if they lost the top sort of younger branches, they would be about the same height, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, this lady has obviously lost a few over the years, storms and yes. whatnot. She's so exposed. She's standing in the middle of this field, fenced off to preserve her, I presume. And But she's just here. Yep. Lord and, of the manor. Yeah, absolutely. Lady of the manor. Yes. Standing uh, on the site of the battle, there was a private battle, Battle of Nibley Green, was fought down below here as the land slopes way down to the stream. The tree is mentioned in the history of that battle. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we won't keep you outside any longer. Thank you for showing us the tree. That's That's wonderful. So that was our first episode of Tree the Crowd. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Mark for letting us into his wonderful home, for letting me play with his Labradors, and for launching our good ship, Trees of Crowd, with such grace. As mentioned, his Ancient Oak Trees exhibition is on at Kew Gardens until the 17th of March. We gave you an extended blast of our theme tune at the top of the show, which was created specially for us by Bella Hardy, who you'll hear interviewed later this season. And I'd like to thank Kev, our editor, and Paul, Nancy, Haley, Ali, Anders, and all at Right Angles for making this possible. We'll be releasing a brand new episode every fortnight. And in the meantime, please follow us on Twitter at TreesAcrowdPod. 
And check out our blog on the website at treesacrowd.fm. Thank you again for listening. We've been Trees A Crowd. You've been wonderful. See you next time.